Okay, hey everybody, we're having uh, like major Bardo problems on our end. Um, this is the, the go-to webinar that we're supposed to start 10 minutes ago. We've been struggling with the, the platform site for over half an hour. Um, I was only able to get on myself using my second computer. So I, I will go ahead and progress with this webinar. Um, and then we'll just record it for the other people. We had some 400 people signed up um, and I'm sure other people have been struggling with the same situation that I had. So thank you all who are, are able to join me um, for coming online. And uh, give me just a second as I uh, kind of um, catch my breath from this somewhat scramble that we've gone through here on our end. So um, this webinar is, <laughs> is a um, part of an ongoing series that we have initiated to um, discuss a variety of different topics and to also introduce people to a particular venture that I'll say a little bit more about um, in just a second, which is called Nightclub. Um, but this particular webinar today uh, is on how sleep and dream prepare you for death or prepare you for the Bardos. Um, but we always start these webinars with a little bit of house cleaning or housekeeping, I should say. And this usually just uh, is to announce a, a couple things that have happened, a couple things that are coming up. Um, we have recently posted a really compelling set of uh, interviews, one with B. Allen Wallace, which has been extremely well received. Another one just released by Claire Johnson, who's a, a dream researcher and scholar. Um, and I also recently interviewed Pema Chodron. That'll be released quite shortly. That was a terrific very informal interview with a dear friend of mine. And also Judson Brewer, who's an MD, PhD, a neuroscientist, um, an expert on addiction. And we had a really wonderful deep dive into the roots of addiction and how it applies to things like lucidity and the like. Um, on deck, I have a commitment from Evan Thompson, um, also Patricia Garfield, noted um, luminaries in this particular arena. But for those of you who may be first time listeners, and again, thank you for your patience, um, this um, uh, afternoon. Um, the way these webinars have been set up is I will present some material on the topic that we've advertised. And then because a large part of what we do with these things is discussion support in that regard, um, we'll have a chance to engage in some Q&A. And you can start jotting down questions or thinking about questions. And then um, with Andy's help, my, my wonderful tech guy will be able to either scroll them in on the right or, or you can raise your hand and he'll show us how to do that and we can address them. But the idea here in terms of um, where this fits in to what we have been offering for the last five months is we launched this particular subset called Nightclub, which is a way to support um, what I've come to call the nocturnal meditations. Um, and these nocturnal meditations include the topic for today, which is Bardo Yoga. So at the back of the nightclub, so to speak, we playfully refer to it as night school, is uh, an opportunity where we have these kind of six ongoing curricula or tracks, um, signs and medicine of, of sleep, um, daytime meditations, practices like illusory form and the like, lucid dreaming, which is in many ways kind of the center um, linchpin of the night. Um, school altogether, and then uh, dream yoga, sleep yoga, and bardo yoga. And so um, because this talk today is about how sleep and dream prepare you for death, it really involves three of these tracks, sleep yoga, dream yoga, and also bardo yoga. So I want to start by defining this term bardo. I know a number of people who are joining us today 
I recently took this wonderful course, this rich course we did with Tricycle Magazine. And thank you all um, so much. If you came from that venue, uh, thank you for joining us today. And in that arena, in that um, program, we obviously define Bardo in some detail. But I want to reiterate it in this perhaps a slightly new way for listeners who may not be that familiar with this term. And for those of you who did take the tricycle course, give you a, perhaps a different lens on it. Um, and I'm going to do this by talking about how bardo, which is a, a Tibetan word, and it means um, in between transitional process or more colloquially gap. And it refers to the gap between two different states of consciousness. Consciousness is two um, gap between two days, two moments, and if you believe in this sort of thing, the gap even between lives. Um, it's a esoteric term with tremendous exoteric applicability. I mean, in other words, you'll see that we can apply Bardo tenets and principles to so many things. But I want to conjoin it with a, a term that's getting a lot of traffic these days, which is this idea of liminality um, in liminal spaces. Um, because even when I was introduced to this, Several months ago, I found it really quite compelling, quite provocative. And so liminal spaces come, you know, the idea of liminal is a, comes from a Latin word that means um, like threshold. And you'll see how liminal is virtually synonymous with this idea of bardo. Um, liminal refers to kind of the time or space between um, what was and what's next. It's a place of transition. Um, often a place of ambiguity, not knowing, kind of a waiting room sense. And depending on how we relate to these liminal spaces, which as we'll see are both physical and psychological, they can be defined either by anticipation or apprehension, anxiety, and even fear. So uh, liminal spaces, i.e. Bardo spaces, are full of um, potential or peril, depending on how we relate to them, depending on how lucid we are to these states. And so my task in this next hour with you, and then obviously in, in future discussions and webinars, is to transform the latter into the former, to create a sense of opportunity in, in what otherwise would be deemed even an obstacle. Um, and so this idea, of course, is liminal spaces, really, if we look at them properly, Bartle spaces are places where transformation takes place, where directions and therefore lives can be changed, these gaps where we can um, either course correct or redirect um, our trajectories, either moment to moment, day to day, or even life to life. If we allow ourselves to hang out in these liminal spaces, relate to the sometimes unsettling quality that's associated with them, and then engage in them in a skillful and lucid way. And so I, I find liminal spaces and Bardo spaces, and I'll give you some very, very specific examples um, to show you just how applicable this idea is. I find them really compelling because in many ways they they interrupt the narrative. Um, and uh, you know, I guess the analogy, one analogy I use is that, you know, imagine that you're um, turning pages in a book and, and you flip the page and all of a sudden there's just a big gap. There's There's nothing there. Or perhaps something like, This, there's just a pause. There's something that interrupts the narrative that um, very often feels a little bit unsettling, a little bit groundless because um, ego doesn't like narratives and, and it doesn't like, I should say, loss of narratives. And this is where the stuff gets important because ego itself, 
um, if you take a close look, is nothing more than a narrative. It's just a sad story with a bad ending. Um, and so one, no. Oh. I can still see you, Andrew. Oh, you can. Uh, I just, yeah. okay, as long as you can see me. Thanks for saying that, Andy, because you guys just totally disappeared. Talk about liminality. Um, so, cool. If you can still see me, I'll just keep riffing. Um, yeah. Everything just kind of went blank on my side, but if we're still live, it's very interesting exercise in borrowed spaces, I guess, this, <laughs> this webinar altogether. So, the, again, just to reiterate, um, ego is a narrative. If you take a close look at your experience, in fact, you'll see that that's what keeps ego aloft. That's what keeps it moving is this endless storyline. And you can get a sense of this. There's already one, re one way you can start to work with this in Sleep and Dream. Um, and then I'll really unpack this with, I think, tremendous applicability in a second. I just want to create a proper context and framework for what we're going to then um, be unpacking. But it's like the experience that you have when you wake up in the middle of the night um, especially if you're traveling. I really notice this when I'm doing international travel. You wake up in the dead of the night and um, you have no idea where you are. Um, where am I? And very often when I get into these spaces now, it's not just where am I, it's, it's often who am I? There's this kind of groundless feeling, this uh, twilight zone. So I guess that's another way to define liminality and liminal zones, this twilight zone where, uh, especially in the middle of the night, the narrative of who I am has been interrupted. And so I wake up and it's like, where am I? Who am I? And um, I now enjoy these kind of interruptions and celebrate the groundlessness. But when I first started having them, they were quite unsettling to me. They were quite groundless. It was like, wait, wait a second, you know, really what's going on here? And so this is what I want to try to explore with you is the potential, the, the kind of pregnancy of these gaps where we can start to explore them moment to moment, night to night with sleep and dream, and then take these and extend them into the big gap at the end of life, if in fact you believe these sorts of things. And so um, the idea here is that we can study these liminal spaces, these bardo spaces, these kind of twilight zone arenas, as a way to learn about the structure of the ego, the, the kind of mechanistic process that keeps the ego afloat altogether. Um, and we can get, I, just, I, I did wanna say this about, again, applicability of this idea of, of, of liminal spaces, liminal, you could even say liminal beings, um, are those people who, just to give you another example, liminal beings are those people um, uh, you could say uh, artists and the like who are hard to pigeonhole. They're hard to um, kind of classify. Transgender um, individuals, those who have fluid identity structures. Um, and I guess in really kind of pathological senses, people with uh, what's called dissociative identity disorder or MPD was previously called multiple personality disorder. In a certain way, they're, they're almost always in, in a kind of a bardo or, or liminal space. And so again, the idea is that if we can rest in these spaces and take advantage of them, um, start to sensitize ourselves to them, we can really use these places and spaces for opportunities for growth. And once you start to sensitize yourself to um, liminal spaces, bardo spaces, you will start to feel them and see them everywhere. For instance, when you send out a, a text message um, an email, 
and you're left hanging, that sense of being um, suspended in space without a response, that gives you a sense of this kind of liminality. Um, if you send out, a, obviously, a, a phone call and it's not returned, that, again, that's another indication. Other really practical examples here that you can work with that are really, I, I find compelling as exercises, is to hang out in some of these physical spaces. So I want to address this just a little bit before we turn to the kind of psychic spaces or psychological spaces. But other areas of, of liminality or kind of bardo zones would be, for instance, stairways or um, elevators, especially if you're alone in an elevator or stairway. You know, you're neither here nor there. You are in transit. Um, empty public spaces convey this sense of liminality or kind of vital quality. Empty auditoriums, empty stadiums, empty movie theaters, empty workplaces, um, hallways at night, um, schools during breaks, empty parking lots, abandoned buildings, ghost towns, uh, and the like. I think you get a sense that these particular physical spaces bring about this quality of um, gap, unsettledness, and somewhat um, grounded groundlessness, which can be very, very fruitful in terms of revealing our propensity for narrative structure and ground and kind of the disquieting um, consequence of when this ground is pulled out from underneath us. And then lastly, in this regard, and this is transitioning into um, psychological states of bardo or liminality, is this arena of what's called liminal dreaming. Um, this is actually a, a topic I'll be discussing with a wonderful author um, in a couple of weeks, Jennifer uh, um, Dumper, who wrote this book on liminal dreaming, which is a very interesting type of pre-dream state, that kind of gap that you have Traditionally, it's been called a kind of hypnagogic space. The gap when you're not quite awake, you're not quite asleep, you're kind of drifting in and out as we fall asleep in the, you know, in the early stages of our descent into sleep. This is what Jennifer refers to as liminal dreaming, which is a very rich, rewarding type of bardo state. You're, you're not quite asleep, you're not quite awake, you're not quite dreaming. Your mind is fluid in its um, level of consciousness altogether. And so, um, once again, working with these spaces, working with these states of mind can really be provocative in terms of revealing how we lust for ground, how we lust for stability, and how unsettled we feel when uh, we don't have that. And so with this as a background, now I want to launch in very specifically with the topic that I had in mind for today, which is how sleep and dream prepare you for um, for death, for bardos or for this kind of um, quality of liminality whether it's moment to moment day to day or if you believe in this sort of thing life to life um, and so let's transition into this topic and so what i want to start with right at the outset is that um, sleep and dream in and of themselves in other words non-lucid sleep and dream are usual um, unaware um, sleep and dream that doesn't really prepare you for much. So how sleep and dream prepare you for death is if sleep and dream can be brought onto the path of lucidity, onto the path of awareness. And so again, of course, lucidity is just a code word for awareness. And this, in fact, is the trajectory of what we explore through nightclub and all these, um, in the larger sense, all the webinars I'm doing, about how we can attain lucidity awareness 
in the waking state through things like meditation, how that naturally extends into the dream state um, and therefore introduces you to the, to the practice of lucid dreaming and then even further dream yoga, how that can mature into lucidity in the deep dreamless state called sleep yoga or luminosity yoga. And then the fruition of all these, of course, the practice that transcends but includes all of them is in fact bardo yoga, the death or, or um, preparatory practices that really include all these other practices and yet even go a step beyond them. Um, and so the idea really that, that I want to explore with you over the next uh, few minutes is how we can bring sleep and dream, in other words, what we do every single night, onto the path of uh, practice, onto the path of meditation, uh, awareness and lucidity. And then if we can do that, as I will now um, point out to you, the traditions um, profess that we will have tremendous traction and good fortune in terms of our ability to prepare and negotiate um, the bardo at, at the end of our lives. And so throughout history in many different um, Eastern and Western intellectual, philosophical and spiritual traditions, there's been a deep connection between sleeping, dreaming, and dying. Um, in the West, the god of uh, death is called Thanatos. The study of death is called Thanatology. The god of sleep is Hypnos. And it's really compelling to me that these two gods are not only brothers, but they're actually twins. Um, so even in, in Western mythological or you know, intellectual thought, a very intimate connection between sleeping um, and dying. In the Buddhist tradition, death is sometimes referred to as literally the dream at the end of time. Um, and so the, the powerful connection here, and this is in fact largely why dream yoga came about, um, principally as a way to prepare for death. The idea is that if we contain lucidity in the dream state, we will have this capability, um, according to these wisdom traditions, to have that same type of lucidity when we transition into the uh, dream at the end of time. And so this is where I want to introduce two concepts that have been really helpful for me, um, kind of terms that really helped me understand how we can use one of these um, dimensions of experience and consciousness to help us understand another. And this is what philosophers refer to as the theory of recapitulation. Um, it's a very common theme, not only in philosophy, but also in, in the mystical spiritual traditions. The Hermetic tradition alludes to the theory of recapitulation as, you know, this famous maxim, as above, so below. Um, the Kala Chakra Tantra in Tibetan Buddhism alludes to it with its central teaching of as within, so without. And the idea is that reality is, you could say, fractal in nature. We all know what these fractals are, these kind of um, visual depictions of iterative processes, of processes that, that repeat themselves at different dimensions. And so fractals are, I think, really compelling visual representations of this theory of recapitulation that can sound somewhat kind of um, distant and philosophical, but as you'll see, has, has real immediate applicability. The idea is that you can use one iteration of experience of consciousness, of phenomena, phenomenology, to help you understand another. And we do this, you know, kind of intuitively, unconsciously all the time. But here, very specifically, what these practices and traditions do is they, they show us that how they show us how we can use sleep and dream 
to as one iteration of um, arising, abiding, and cessation of consciousness to help us understand um, the end of life, how we can use the mind as, as it manifests in meditation and its ability to um, uh, bear witness to the arising, abiding, and dissolution of each and every thought. Um, this kind of uh, philosophers refer, refer to this as kind of hermeneutical process, the process of interpretation. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation how we can use one interpretation, one experience to help us understand the other. And so this is a more formal way to talk about exactly what we're talking about now, how we can use sleep and dream to prepare for death. Because many wisdom traditions, not just the Buddhist tradition, assert that these, these states are highly um, concordant. They're, they're um, highly resonant with each other. And very specifically, just to show you how, how specific it is, in the Tibetan approach, they talk about three death bardos. Um, the painful bardo of dying is the, the condition that uh, will eventually lead and uh, I should say um, kind of conclude in the experience of death altogether. The bardo of dying is a concordant experience, the Buddhist tradition maintains, to the process of actually falling asleep. When we fall into deep dreamless sleep, that's a concordant experience every night of what's called the luminous bardo of dharmata, where we're introduced to more formless dimensions of our being. And then when dreams actually arise and we're swept along in the dream state and then eventually wake up in the next day, that's a concordant experience of the karmic bardo of becoming. And so therefore, what this tradition does, what the Tibetan Buddhist tradition does, is then it uses um, sleep and dream in a really articulate, elegant way to help us understand the processes that they profess we will experience in a grander fashion towards the end of life. And this is such a profound assertion that I want to give you some supportive statements from several different masters that speak to this. The first one is by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, where he says, quote, a well-trained person can recognize a strict order in the four stages of falling asleep and is well prepared to ascertain an analogous order in the dying process, end quote. And the next one's from Bokha Rinpoche. The energy governing each element in the process of death ceases to be functional and is absorbed into the energy of the following element. This process of absorption of the four elements into each other does not occur only at death. It also happens in an extremely subtle manner when we fall asleep or even more subtle when a thought is removed from our mind, end quote. And this is a, a beautiful summary statement of this kind of theory of recapitulation. Use the arising abiding cessation of a thought, a moment, a life to help you understand um, the processes of uh, other dimensions. Um, and so here's a, an even more uh, kind of compelling one from Guru Rinpoche, Padmasambhava. He's the great Indian Siddha, the master who brought Buddhism from India to Tibet and is the author of the very famous Tibetan Book of the Dead. And so this is what he says. This one's a little bit longer, but it's definitely worth um, citing in full because I find it so compelling. So this is Guru Rinpoche speaking. At first, when you fall asleep, earth is dissolving into water. Paren, this is me speaking. 
those of you who know the eight stages of the outer dissolution that occurs at the moment, or I should say during the process of the um, painful bardo of dying, will understand that this is what he's talking about. So at first, when you fall asleep, earth is dissolving into water. At that time, train in the vivid sense of clarity and emptiness and focus your interest at the heart. Then when consciousness sinks, water is dissolving into fire. And at that time, do not lose the vivid sense of clarity and emptiness. In other words, maintain your lucidity. That's what he's saying here. When the mind becomes agitated, fire is dissolving into air. And at that time, too, train in the vivid sense of clarity and emptiness, i.e. sustain your lucidity, your awareness. Falling fast asleep corresponds to air dissolving into consciousness. And at that time, too, clearly and vividly focus on your heart without losing the earlier sense of clarity and emptiness. Then the state of dreamless lucidity corresponds to the consciousness dissolving into the clear light. So this is the transition. This is me. This is the transition from the bardo of dying into the bardo of dharmata. So this is what he's referring to here. So just to reiterate, then the state of dreamless lucidity corresponds to consciousness dissolving into the clear light, luminous bardo of dharmata. And at that time, your sleep will lucidly remain in the clarity and emptiness that is unborn and devoid of recollection. If you, under, if you recognize the clarity and emptiness of that occasion, which is free of the intellect, this is what's called recognizing the clear light. That is similar to the dissolution of consciousness into the clear light at the time of death. So this is training for the intermediate state, the bardo, between death and birth. The present recognition of the dream state, therefore, is the real training for the intermediate state. So these are amazing quotations in my opinion that show us every single night when we fall asleep, we have an opportunity in this miniature death and rebirth process, if we bring lucidity or awareness to it, we have the opportunity to gain tremendous insight and then eventually control over this process. Because what all the traditions say is that the biggest problem in the bardo in the after-death state um, is not realizing that you're in it. In other words, being non-lucid to it, not realizing that you're dead when you're dead. It's a little bit like when I first saw the movie Sixth Sense. Um, it, I found that quite compelling and haunting. It was very similar experience to what um, who was it Bruce Willis was going through this experience, not realizing that he was dead. And so the wisdom traditions say that that in fact is a large part of what constitutes such a difficult tr transition after we die. In other words, non-lucidity is the issue. So the idea here is that if you don't take control, and again, think about your nighttime dream. If you don't take control, if you don't wake up and take control in your nighttime dream, what does? Your habits, your karma takes control. And so in exactly the same way these traditions assert, if we do not wake up and, and transform a non-lucid bardo experience into a lucid bardo experience in exactly the same way, if we can't wake up and take control over this journey, what does our habits, our karma? And this also immediately makes me reflect on what uh, Trung Rinpoche once said when he was asked, what is it that reincarnates? He very um, kind of bluntly put it, your bad habits, um, your karma. So if we don't wake up and take control, um, in the bardo state, just like if we don't wake, wake up and take control in the dream state, 
what controls? Well, it's simply the habitual patterns, the karma that we've instilled into our unconscious mind during our lives. And so this is the extraordinarily good news here is that in a moment of lucidity, anybody who's had that transition from non-lucid to lucid dream, in a moment of lucidity, you can flip the tables completely. Something that previously had complete control over you, now you can control the dreamscape. You take control. And in exactly the same way, they assert, um, and in fact, Padmasambhava, once again, in his classic teaching on the six bardos in a text that you can get called Natural Liberation, translated by B. Allen Wallace, he, he actually guarantees that if you can maintain, and the, the number is archetypal, so don't take it too literally, but Guru Rinpoche says if you can maintain lucidity seven times in the dream state, which is really just a kind of a metaphor, an archetype for some constancy in lucidity, Guru Rinpoche guarantees that that proficiency will extend into the Bardo state and you will be um, um, very well kind of tended to by that awareness. It's a little bit like what the great poet Kabir once said of death. And he said, what is found now is found then. Um, if we're non-lucid to the contents of our mind now, during the day or during the dream, we'll be non-lucid to our experience when we die. If we attain lucidity, which is precisely what the charter of meditation is about, precisely the charter of these nocturnal meditations, then in fact, that proficiency will click in in, in the dream at the end of time, and we'll be able to ride that lucidity um, with great success. And so the idea here, and, and this to me I think is really quite important, is that um, very often, at least I talk about lucid dreaming and dream yoga as being in that family, um, in this kind of bi-directional process. In other words, that what we do during the day affects what we do at night when we dream. What we do at night then can actually affect what we do during the day. Um, this is fairly intuitive. I think we can see this with some, um, uh, with some ease. But what these teachings are now pointing out is that this goes even further into a kind of tri-directional approach. In other words, what you do in sleep and dream not only can affect what you do during the day going back, but it can affect and inform what you do going forward into the bardos. And so it just doesn't ping back to life and help us wake up at night. It can ping forward into the bardos, according to these wisdom teachings, and help us attain lucidity and wake up in, in the after-death journey. Um, and so to me, this brings a really new meaning and kind of uh, importance to this kind of conscious dying movement, which in a larger sense for me is a lucid dying movement. How can we tame lucidity um, in the death and dying journey so that previously uncontrollable situations now fall under our control? Um, and so this is really the charter of, of what we're trying to do here with these practices, because what makes the bardos allegedly so terrifying is that mind becomes reality in the bardos. Uh, mind becomes reality. Why? Well, if you reflect on it, it's because there's nothing else. Body has been removed. Um, and it's really just like a dream. Uh, mind becomes reality in a dream. And if an untamed, untrained mind that's full of bad habits is released without sensory constraints in the dream state without the hitching posts of, of the body. This is often defined as a nightmare. Um, and the same type of process can happen and create a kind of nightmare situation after we die. 
But if a tamed, trained, and therefore lucid mind, and this is the whole point, if a tamed, trained, and therefore lucid mind, trained in daily meditation, supplanted with the practices of dream and sleep yoga, if that lucid mind is then released, um, instead of a nightmare, instead of obstacle, you have literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And the tradition here is really quite um, kind of assertive, proclamatory, when it says there are more opportunities for rapid spiritual development after death than there are in life, because the mind is in a much more fluid environment. It can be moved with greater ease. They give the analogy that if you're trying to move a big uh, tree stump on land, it can take 25, 50 people to move a tree stump. You put that same tree stump in a fluid medium like water, and one person can move it. And so it, the fluidity, therefore, like in the dream state, the fluidity, the liminality, the kind of groundless experience, both in the dream and death state, then, depending on how we relate to it, can be either nightmarish if we start to panic and grasp, and this is, is what, in fact, the tradition says will hurl us involuntarily into the next form, is our inability to ride this fluidity and the inability to stay in this liminal space. The kind of lust for ground and um, body will, in fact, then hurl us into one. But if we have some sense of liminality, of groundlessness, of hanging out in these fluid environments starting now, then when that fluidity, you could even say that freedom is delivered to us at the end of the life, at the end of life, just as it is in dream, instead of freaking out and contracting, which hurls us back into form, we can relax, retain openness, and then actually guide our journey in exactly the same way that we can now do so with uh, lucid dreaming and dream yoga. Um, and so uh, I wanted to um, transition into one last thing here, um, actually two last things, and then we can um, have time for some questions. And that is that at the deepest levels, at the deeper levels, what dream yoga does is dream yoga, when it's really explored, um, into its depths will eventually reveal to you, and sleep yoga does the same thing, uh, maintaining lucidity in the dreamless state, but that's a little bit harder to accomplish. So that's why I put more of my emphasis on, on dream yoga and dream states. What dream yoga will point out to you that fundamentally through these practices, you will come to have a deeper sense and appreciation for how everything that arises is in essence a dream. Um, that fundamentally what you can learn from these nocturnal practices is that, and I've mentioned this frequently in my other um, podcast, is that dream at this level becomes a code word um, for manifestation of mind. That at the deepest awakened levels, when, when spiritual masters wake up, and there are countless um, assert, uh, kind of supportive statements from Advaita Vedanta, from um, Nandula Kashmir Shaivism and the Shaiva traditions from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, from other wisdom traditions, that when you when you truly wake up spiritually, what you wake up from is this kind of solid, concretized, reified, dualistic world that is body-based, form-based. You wake up from that and to, you wake up to a reality that is dreamlike, that is fluid, liminal, 
um, groundless, what the Buddhists refer to as empty or emptiness. And so by understanding this, what it does then is it answers one of the most um, frequently asked questions about death, um, you know, probably second to like, what is it that reincarnates? Well, Trung Rinpoche help, helped us with that, our bad habits. Where do we go when we die? This is another very, very common question. Well, this answers it. We simply transition from one dream to the next. Um, we simply um, kind of transition from this concretized zone of ossified reality, so-called material world, which is really not the nature of this world whatsoever. It's, it's a nature that we impute onto the world from this egoic structure. When that dissolves and you see this world as a dream, that's what it means to wake up. You wake up to this reality as being dreamlike. Actually, not dreamlike. It is a dream. Then with that deep understanding, you realize that when you die, you're simply transitioning from one manifestation of mind to the next. That's why death in the Buddhist tradition is referred to as the dream at the end of time. You're just transitioning from one dream to another. Um, and this is beautifully supported by a, a haunting quote, quote, I should say, poem that many of you may have heard, but I, it definitely um, bears repeating by Edgar Allan Poe, where the title of this dream, I should say the title of this poem is literally a dream within a dream. So this is what Edgar Allan Poe has to say that is just so resonant with what we're talking about here. Take this kiss upon the brow and in parting from you now, this much let me avow that you are not wrong who deem that my days have been a dream. Yet if hope has flown away in a night or in a day, in a vision or in none, is it therefore the less gone? All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. I stand amid the roar of a self-tormented shore, and I hold within my hand grains of the golden sand. How few, yet how they creep through my fingers to the deep. While I weep, while I weep, O oh God, can I not grasp them with a tighter clasp? O oh God, can I not save at all? O oh God, can I not save one from the pitiless wave? Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? And the wisdom traditions would say, yes, that's exactly the way reality is. It's all just a dream within a dream. And for those of you, and I'm sure many of you have had this haunting experience, if you've ever had the experience of false awakening, where you're dreaming, especially if they're lucid, they have real power. But even in a non-lucid false awakening, it's when you're dreaming and you wake up and you're doing, you know, you, you're awake and you're doing your thing. And then all of a sudden something and that state will clue you into the fact that, OMG, I'm still dreaming. You've woken up to what you think is your um, kind of ground-based reality, but something will further clue you into the fact that, holy crap, this is still a dream. Um, I have had, they're also called recursive dreams, these nested dreams. I've had as many of three levels of false awakening, where over, over a period of several, you know, I think 20 minutes or so, I wake up. 
I feel like I'm running around my, my so-called daily life doing my normal activities. Something pings me into the fact that, OMG, this is still the dream. I wake up from that into another level. I do exactly the same thing. Something will ping me into the realization, oh my gosh, this is still a dream. And then you kind of eventually bottom out thinking that you're awake in so-called waking reality. I've had some lucid dreaming, dream yoga um, friends of mine tell me that they've had as many as seven of these kind of false awakenings. The movie Inception kind of alludes to this just a little bit. But the idea is that you start to get some sense of how if we are unable to hang in these liminal spaces, in these groundless spaces, you know, you start having um, a number of these, these kind of false awakenings. If the untamed, untrained mind can't relate to this kind of groundlessness, this freedom, it can actually kind of panic. Um, the experience can become highly unsettling. And I, I, was, I suppose at the deepest sense, even potentially psychotic, because psychosis could be defined on one level as the inability to detect what's fundamentally real. But the idea here is we can use these incredible practices to help us gain an understanding of liminality, of bardo spaces, of the fluidity of, of the mind as it's released in the dream state, gain some familiarity with that, some confidence, some stability, um, knowing through you know, processes of, of uh, inference and the like, and obviously believing in what these great meditation masters have said, that allegedly in the after-death state, the experience will be highly, highly resonant and similar. And to me, it makes a great deal of sense that it's my either ability or inability to hang out in this groundlessness that will then either create a good or bad death, a good or bad trip. And um, of course, if I can't handle that groundlessness, then the propensity to reestablish that ground, according to these wisdom traditions, will in fact be the impetus that propels you back into form, back into birth, if in fact you believe in this sort of thing. Um, and so with this in mind, I invite you to explore these nocturnal meditations um, within the arena of the Bardo teachings. They have tremendous applicability. Um, dream yoga and sleep yoga can give you a profound sense of um, familiarity with these extraordinarily subtle dimensions of mind. That's the other great gift that they do, is they reveal to you these very subtle dimensions um, that, according to these wisdom traditions, are the exact same dimensions that are revealed when we, um, when we die. So if we can gain familiarity with these extraordinarily subtle dimensions, we can gain some sense of confidence and control um, at the dream at the end of time. And so um, I want to come up for air now, uh, you know, take a couple of the questions that were sent to me, and then I can't see you, but we'll see if my, my friend Andy can help me with um, taking some questions from you all. And we do have some time. Hopefully um, this thing has actually been working and people have been able to come on. <laughs> Deep apology for the, uh, the go-to webinar faux pas. Um, but let me just take a couple questions that were sent to me, and then I would be thrilled to entertain as much as you all want to talk about um, in relation to this particular topic or virtually anything else. So here's, a, here's one. Um, this is an interesting question. I'm wondering, is there a for sure technique for going out of the body? If so, what is it? I have attempted numerous times, but only consciously escaped, so to speak, for about 15 seconds. Um, so this question that was sent to me, you know, um, tongue in cheek, there's no for sure way of going out of the body that I know of outside of death. <laughs> so 
um, that's the only guaranteed way to have an out-of-body experience. Um, unless, of course, you flash on, uh, I mean, immediately think of what James Joyce once said of a character. I think it was in Ulysses, but I'm not sure. When he says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> so in a, in a certain sense, if we're not present in our body, we're having an out-of-body experience most of our lives. And in fact, I would argue that this is what creates a sense of um, incompleteness or a sense that there's something missing. But to be a little bit more direct with this question, there, there's no guarantee for sure way that I'm aware of. There are teachers who teach about this. Um, uh, Jade Shaw, who is the wife of Charlie Morley, who's a lucid dreaming expert. If you check out her site, she writes and teaches about um, these kind of OBEs, out-of-body experiences, and how to do them. The Monroe Institute plays with this sort of thing. I have to say I don't have a lot of traffic with these schools myself. Within the tradition of dream yoga, um, it is a specific stage in the more advanced stages of dream yoga where you can create what His Holiness the Dalai Lama calls a special body. The special dream body can then uh, dissociate from the physical body and you can have a genuine OBE. There's a great deal more to say about this topic. Um, I just want to ping out there the vast majority of people that I've talked to when they're questioned, most out-of-body experiences in my experience are um, altered embodied experiences. They're, they're kind of uh, conjoined with what are called hyperlucid dreams. This is not to say that in the worldview that I subscribe to, this type of uh, experience is not available to us. It seems to be. But very specifically, I do not know of a for sure technique for going out of your body outside of physical death. <laughs> so the next one is, um, what is the role of devotion in preparing for death and transit through the bardos? Well, if you are a student of Vajrayana Buddhism, which is where the bardo teachings come from, or abide by the tenets of what's called bhakti yoga in the, in the uh, Brahmanical or Hindu traditions, then devotion has a very uh, critical component. If you don't abide by these schools or these tenets, it may not speak to you. But um, devotion, especially in Vajrayana Buddhism, is something that is absolutely uh, applicable um, where one can cry out from the bottom of one's heart if, if one has a relationship to a teacher um, for help. I remember a talk that Chucky Nimer and once gave, and it was uh, I was quite struck by it because it was so, so just direct. Where he said that, you know, when everything else fails in, in the Bardo state, or even in the dream state, honestly, a nightmare state, he basically said, just call out from the bottom of your heart for help. If this speaks to you, then this, the role of devotion can be enormously helpful. Um, if it doesn't speak to you, then obviously there are other um, skill sets. There's more in the in the armamentarium or toolkit that you could use. But in short, the role of devotion and preparing for death and the bardos um, in, in the Vajrayana Buddhism is enormous. Um, another question. As consciousness is to awareness and awareness is to mindfulness, does this then imply that consciousness is synonymous with awareness? Um, I'm not sure I got that question right. The consciousness. Yeah, you know, I scribbled this one down. Andy, maybe you can help me while I'm struggling. I'm not sure I wrote this one down properly. This was a question that was submitted to me. Mm -hmm. If you can pull that up for me and read it, I'm not sure I wrote that one down properly. But while you're doing that, let me ask, uh, read one more, and then we'll open it up to our listeners. 
While in retreat, I had a really intense lucid dream lately connected with a positive emotion of deep compassion. However, it was so intense that I felt like I am afraid maybe I don't want to be so exposed. If you had such an experience, can you elaborate? Yeah, I have had such experiences. Um, and it's a very interesting statement here that I'm afraid maybe I don't want to be so exposed. Maybe I don't want to be so open. Um, and usually when we have that feeling, that's a kind of a litmus or a metric, litmus test or metric for ego coming in out of fear and wanting to close down. Because um, one consequence of being so open when you increase the aperture of your awareness and become lucid in meditation, become lucid in dream states, become lucid in, in deep dreamless states, this type of openness, um, if it's left alone, is extraordinarily liberating and refreshing. But when ego comes in to appropriate this experience, um, very often it can feel as a type of vulnerability, as a, as, as a sense of not wanting to be so open and exposed. And so when that feeling then comes about, armed with this knowledge, perhaps we can rela uh, relax, rest in that state of openness and vulnerability, allow ourselves to be so exposed, and realize that the reason we want to do that is that fundamentally, this is the courage that comes about from a type of unconditional love. You know, that if we, if we open our hearts completely to all situations, all circumstances, a natural consequence of that opening is just this unconditional, spontaneous love. So in other words, another way to say this is that this is the actual natural state being this open. Um, we close down, egoic clo ego closes down out of fear. Um, and so therefore, being out of love, being closed, being contracted is actually the unnatural state. So this can help us so that as we open, we relax. Um, we start to dissolve our boundaries and our defenses. From an egoic perspective, for sure, it can be threatening. It also reveals to us why, from kind of an egoic structure point of view, we don't want, the ego doesn't want to go here because if you're so open, you can get hurt. But even then, you only get hurt if you appropriate the, the insult or, or whatever it is that could um, be hurting you. If you don't give it a place to land, it can't hurt you. Um, so maybe that's all I'll say about that. And Andy, if you can if you can read me that question, which I'm not sure I wrote down entirely, that's great. If not, we'll just open it up to other listeners who may want to offer some comments or suggestions or questions at this point. Sure. Yeah, we have a lot of questions coming in, but I did find that question. So okay, I'll prior. read it to you. Yeah, as it was written. Um, it says, uh, as consciousness is to awareness and awareness is to mindfulness, does this imply that consciousness is synonymous with mindfulness? Yeah, with mindfulness. Yeah, I did write it wrong. No, it doesn't imply that um, because you can certainly be kind, uh, conscious and be mindless. Um, in fact, that's kind of the default is that the untamed conscious, so-called conscious mind um, is more often than not mindless. So there, there you can't make that fundamental implication. The logic doesn't extend to that because you can most certainly be conscious and mindless. Um, um, and of course the practice is to transform that mindless to mindful. So that's a relatively easy one to answer. And so let's take some questions from listeners then. If you could read them to me, that would be great, Andy. Yeah, definitely. So this is from Prem. 
says, uh, how realistic is it for us to cultivate lucid dreaming? Is it possible to achieve consistent lucid dreaming, or is this only realistically possible for the very focused, trained, disciplined monks, lamas, etc., living in monasteries versus the distracted, busy lives we, quote, normal practitioners live? Uh, great, great question. Nice to meet you electronically, by the way. Um, yeah, that's a really great question. We certainly have the capabilities, but as you're alluding to, Prem, it really is, again, it harks back to what we were talking about. What is found now is found then. So what you said is absolutely right. If, if you want to attain constancy in lucidity, um, if we want to maintain every, create dreams where all your dreams are lucid, then with rare exception, and I have to say, we have to toss this in. There, there are few rare individuals that, that um, have, and these are not spiritual masters, um, as far as I'm aware of, but there are rare individuals who allegedly um, seem to have lucid dreams as their baseline dream. I have to also throw in with that uh, said that the natural type of dream, Prem, this is a, a very interesting assertion that I'm exploring in my writing now. The natural type of dream, believe it or not, is lucid. We have actually been trained culturally, biologically, socially, phenomenologically. We've been trained into non-lucidity. And when we realize that synonyms for non-lucidity are distraction, um, forgetfulness, um, we realize that because we're so distracted, mindless, forgetful during the day, that natural kind of proficiency, we could say, is extended into the dream state. We therefore have uh, forgotten, mindless, um, non-lucid dreams. And so we can develop tremendous constancy in our nighttime lucidity um, by increasing our levels of mindful practice, practices of remembrance, practices of awareness during the day. We will see that naturally reflected in the dream state. Whether we can do that without becoming full-time monastics in what you're um, referring to, that's an open question for me. I, I believe that in order to attain these states 100% of the time, and again, where there's no mystery here, uh, we have to devote ourselves 100% of the time to doing it. Now, this should not discourage us. This doesn't mean like, oh my gosh, I'm just not going to do this because it's so hard. Um, it, this is just basically you know, pretty straightforward logic. If you can practice a little bit of lucidity awareness during the day with your meditation and these induction techniques, you will start to have lucid dreams at night. And the great gift about lucid dreams, if you've had them, you probably have, is because they're so compelling, especially hyper-lucid dreams, let alone sleep yoga, lucidity in the deep dreamless state, you don't need to have these dreams all the time to have them really profoundly change you and to transform you because they're so foundational. But in a nutshell, um, I would agree that if you want to have 100% lucidity at night, you at least uh, until you reach this kind of stability, have to devote yourself 100% to it during the day. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't engage in these practices now and have um, success on a more limited basis because lucidity at whatever level is always beneficial. Okay, Andy, next one. Yeah, um, so just a, a quick heads up, Andrew. It sounds like there might be some papers uh, wrestling near your microphone. So just, um, or yeah, maybe some there's, near not, your there's nothing moving here. It could just be the half, the, the leftover, because the only thing I'm doing is just picking up my drink. So I'm not sure where that rustling is coming from. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. 
no problem. Good to know. So this question comes from Nestor. It says, uh, is it possible to die completely without new rebirth? Yeah, it is. Um, Nestor, the idea here is if you have, this is quite an esoteric question, but the traditions do answer it. If you have the, the absolute constancy of full awakening before you die, um, you have, you, so to speak, quote unquote, have as an option with that degree of awakening, with that degree of lucidity, of not taking um, formal birth. Um, at that point, you, quote unquote, and it's quote unquote because you don't really exist at, that, at this level of awareness, you, quote unquote, can do whatever you want. But what seems to happen, Nestor, is that at this level of tremendous wisdom, um, because that that's the kind of state that brings about this level of awakening. That is almost by definition, and I would I would say probably by definition, immediately expressed with tremendous um, compassion. And so the 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 idea of of FedExing out, escaping, so to speak, um, and getting out of rebirth altogether. This is more in the domain, and there's no criticism whatsoever being leveled here of my understanding of, of, of Hindu schools and moksha. The idea is we just want to get out of, of the cycle of rebirth. The Buddhist tradition has a slightly different agenda. The idea is not to get out of rebirth. The idea is to get out of involuntary rebirth, to take your wisdom voluntarily and embody it um, not only voluntarily but spontaneously as compassion for the benefit of others. But just to keep it brief, yes. Theoretically, if you have this type of complete awakening and wisdom, you can do whatever you want. And if that means hanging out in a disembodied um, state without taking further rebirth, theoretically, that seems to be possible. Um, but again, the reflex of this type of awakening is almost always, in fact, I would say always, associated with reflexive, spontaneous, compassionate rebirth for the benefit of others. So something like that. This next question comes from Adam. Is there a parallel to dream stability skills in Bardo states that is discussed in the wisdom traditions? If so, can you riff a little on this? Uh, say, say, just read the first part again, Andy. I'm sorry. Sure. Is there a, is there a parallel to dream stability skills in Bardo states that is discussed yes. in the wisdom traditions? Yes, for sure. For sure. Um, and again, it's like this kind of follows this narrative of what Kabir says, you know, what is found now is found then. Um, and so for sure, the stability or lack thereof, the lucidity or lack thereof, the control or lack thereof that we have in the dream state is is directly correlative to what we'll experience on the Bardos. And in fact, there's a very common saying in Tibet where it says, you know, based on my experiences last night, I can infer I'm going to have a hard time in the Bardos tomorrow. Um, but what we want to do is say, based on my experiences last night, I can infer I'm going to have a great time in the Bartles tomorrow because what is found now is found then. Um, and to take this from this kind of bi-directional tenet, Adam, to a tri-directional one, is that where does that stability come from and how can we work with it now? It comes from the meditative mind because when the mind is simply released, you know, the daytime mind, consciousness, is simply released from sensory constraint. So that's what we know is the dream state. If a stable mind is released, um, stability brought about by waking meditations, that naturally extends into the dream state. This is why meditators, not only do they have more lucid dreams, 
but their dreams are, are um, clearer, they're more stable, they last longer, they're lucid. This is a natural consequence of what we do during the day. That exact same proficiency, again, because it's just from one dream to the next, right? That exact same proficiency and a kind of tri-directional approach now extends um, allegedly into the bardo states. It makes total sense to me that now when, when the mind is released from all sensory constraint, um, uh, complete utter release into the bardo state, that same level of proficiency and stability um, can be gleaned in, in bardos. And so this again empowers the, the notion not only of dream yoga, but of daily meditation. That you know, when mind becomes reality, that mind is stable. Um, says that stability actually becomes your body. And so that type of stability is, in fact, a large part of the charter of these uh, meditations that prepare us for not only dream, but for death. So great question. Here's a question from Shari. A good friend passed last year and came to me via my dream state. He was in this wasteland kind of place. He showed me animal skulls in a bleak desert landscape. He showed me fear, sadness, and being incredulous about being dead, i.e. in the bardo. According to the bardo teachings, what was happening to him and what happened afterward? I yeah. wouldn't, have, I wouldn't okay. have thought to dream something like this up. I know it came from him. Yeah, Shari, yeah, who's to say, right? Um, I I don't know if anybody can answer that question. Um, and, you know, the fact that you that you have this kind of certainty that it came from him, I, I'm certainly not going to contest that. But it's, it's really an impossible question. Um, this type of bleakness, again, it, this is one of the reasons um, that the wisdom traditions exhort us to work with mind now um, because you know the what creates these types of experiences in the bardos or in death is not some pre-existing scape you're not like landing when you dream every night you don't land in a pre-existing dreamscape it's just your mind that's expressed without restraint when you die you don't land in some pre-existing bardoscape it's just your mind released without sensory constraint and so I, I can't answer that question, Shari. I'm not sure anybody can. But what I want to try to take deliver from that is that again, if the mind is is um, stabilized, purified, cleansed, clear, lucid, then these experiences just don't occur. The, the, they become highly opportunistic experiences. Um, so I can't say what happened. Eventually, you know, theoretically, at a certain point. Um, unless you are, you know, really attached and get stuck. And this is purely, this is kind of the metaphysical part of these teachings that I have absolutely no personal experience with. It just comes from my understanding of the literature. You can stay up um, into the space for 49 days or even longer, um, depending on your uh, you know, capacity or, or incapacity to kind of handle that space. So it's extraordinarily difficult um, to really answer this question with any assurance, but eventually, what will happen is these liminal spaces, you, you can't hang out in them forever, according to these um, teachings. Eventually, through the force of habit, karma, propulsion, impulse, you will take on form. Um, and then eventually, the cycle just starts all over again. So I wish I could speak with more authority on that. Those types of questions are, are extremely difficult to answer. So best I can do with it. Anita just chimed in and said, this makes me... This makes me think about the Catholic purgatory. 
Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that that's a really interesting point, Anita. You know, it, 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 I'm with you because I'm I'm a Catholic, I'm a recovering Catholic, and I've, I've actually thought about this a little bit. Um, and I think what what these traditions are trying to do, you know, it's it's kind of a double edged sword, isn't it? Because on one level, you know, especially if you read like the Tibetan Book of the Dead and and, and all these you know, other kind of thanatological literatures where they talk about that harrowing, you know, perilous, terrifying straits of the Bardos. Well, gosh, I mean, like, how helpful is that? You know, I mean, the fundamental instruction truly, Anita, for a trajectory of a good death is is a quality of openness, relaxation. And if you're if you're hearing all this stuff, like, man, that is not conducive to openness and relaxation. So I totally hear what you're saying. And my riff on this is that I think what they're trying to do is <laughs> this is again my my deal is these these wisdom traditions, especially the non-theistic ones. You know, they, they, they don't because they don't profess a creator principle. They don't believe in God. Um, they can't put the fear of God into us. But what they can do, and this is what's called wholesome fear. And Lama Zopa Rinpoche wrote an entire, entire book on this. They can create a, a type of wholesome fear where they put the fear of karma into us. Um, you know, a kind of an, a good level of disquietude that says, hey, wait a second here. I better watch what I'm doing um, in my life because otherwise, you know, it may not be such a graceful journey after I die. So I let you, Anita, play with that, whatever speaks to you. But I, I, I wrestled with exactly the same thing. It's like, whoa, you know, this doesn't make me feel all that great. But this is the way I read it. it it's designed to put the fear of karma into us, <laughs> the fear of our bad habits and our uncontrolled mind. So that we can say, hey, wait a second, this is exactly, by the way, what Milarepa did. If, if you're a student of Tibetan Buddhism, this is exactly what Milarepa did, um, uh, you know, when he killed 35 people and um, finally realized the, the karmic implications of his acts. He then, because of that recognition, I'll see if I can remember the quote. It goes something like this. He says, you know, in horror of death, I took to the mountains Contemplating again and again on the uncertainty in the hour of death, I captured the fortress of the deathless, unending nature of mind. Thus, all fear of death is over and done with. Um, and I think that's the point here, Anita. At least that's the way I read it. But I'm, I'm with you on this one, especially coming as, from a Catholic tradition myself. <laughs> Next one, Andy. Uh, Deborah wrote in with two questions. First is, what is yoga nidra? Mm -hmm. And... Second is, can you be born into a different time period? Different time period. Okay, first one. Uh, yoga Nidra. Nidra is uh, sleep. So yoga Nidra is sleep yoga. But it is different from what the Tibetans talk about as sleep yoga, which, by the way, they also refer to as luminosity yoga. Yoga Nidra, and the place to go here is um, the work of Richard Miller and his, his IRS movement. Um, I interviewed Richard. He's, he's really one of the best people to, to kind of play and work with the Yoga Nidra thing. It's a way to work with profound states of relaxation and openness, a way to bring a quality of meditation and, and practice into the sleep and dream state. But while it has some deep similarities to what the Tibetans talk about is, is sleep yoga, it's not quite the same thing. Um, in terms of the second one, can we reborn? What was it? What was that, Andy? Can we reborn into a different? Yeah, can you be born into a different time period? Uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure what that means. Uh, you know, for, on, on one level, time doesn't exist, right? 
So can you be reborn like into the past? Um, doesn't seem so. And again, I, I have no personal experience here. I'm speaking from what the tradition says and my understanding of it, that um, you, unless you have, you know, this extraordinarily level, extraordinary level of control, um, my understanding is there is um, some provisional directionality to what's called the arrow of time and that we don't have the ability to go back in time, even though it's illusory. Um, and therefore, you know, to the ability to project forward in time, um, I'm not sure that's entirely possible as well. But these kind of more theoretical questions, um, I don't have a great deal of traffic with them. Um, and that's probably as far as I can go with that second question. Here's one from Joni. Do you try to continue your daily routine like meditation and practice in the bardo? You mean when you're in the bardo? Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, you know, once you attain lucidity, so like, you know, you're pinging along in a non-lucid bardo experience. And uh, obviously then you, you can't do anything. You're just being buffeted around just like in a dream by the contents of your uh, mind being unleashed without mediation. But once you attain lucidity, yeah, for sure. Then what happens is all these um, good habits that you've installed in your operating system, so to speak, you know, they will then pop up. That's the whole idea of doing these practices. You're installing all these pop-ups into your unconscious mind. And if you're a student of Buddhism, this is called the eighth consciousness, the store consciousness. You're, 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 you're kind of downloading all these pop-ups of a lucidity, awareness, and wisdom that when you then experience these bardal states, they will pop up, they will ping into your awareness, they will wake you up. And then indeed, these meditative states of mind um, will start to work you. That's the great gift here is that, you know, you start to work with these practices now, they will start to work with you then. Um, because your habits will then, your good habits will then take control. And so this is super important because then what, what it also alludes to is that, of course, it, it's not just spiritual practitioners, let alone Buddhists, for goodness sake, that can have a good death. Anybody that lives a good life will be taken care of by the force of that goodness. If you have good habits installed, those good habits will be unleashed and you're going to be just fine. But in short, for sure, that's why we do these practices. Um, they start to reveal ourselves in the dream, reveal themselves in the dream. Then they will start to reveal themselves um, after we die. And those practices will then take good care of you. So for sure. Uh, this question came from Katie. So I think you might have elaborated on this one a bit. But uh, what do you mean by if you create lucidity seven times? Yeah, again, this is this is what um, Padmasambhava says, the great master. It's in the book, Natural, Natural Liberation, so you can read it there. He says, and again, seven times is don't take it literally. Um, it's, it's very interesting to me when you start talking about bardo teachings, nothing is fixed in the bardo teachings. Um, <laughs> that's one of the things that makes them bardo-like. There's Nothing's fixed. And so everything's you know kind of unleashed, unhitched. And so... Seven times is a, is a, a meta, metaphorical number, an archetype, archetypal number that basically means um, you have developed some proficiency in lucidity with your dreams. So if you have some lucidity, if you're, if you're pinging into lucid dreams with some regularity, what Padmasambhava pretty much guarantees is that that kind of proficiency will then extend into the bardal state. So don't take it too literally. Just means some level of frequency and constancy. 
So here's a question from Sheila. There's two questions. The first is, I, I don't remember many dreams now. I used to have lots of nightmares or dreams about flying, but now nothing. Can I learn to benefit from these nocturnal processes and practices? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Because when you do these practices, remember, you know, lucid dreaming, lucid sleep, um, those practices. Lucidity is a code word for awareness. I mean, a, a lucid dream is just an aware dream. Lucid sleep is just aware sleep. And so this is the great, what I call stealth help. There's so much more going on than meets the eye here with these practices. So when you're working with them, just like you're working with meditation, of course, you're developing awareness. And if there's one kind of fundamental curative ingredient for any psychological or spiritual issue, really, it's awareness. Um, and so absolutely positively, you start engaging in these practices of awareness. Awareness um, cannot be contained in a very real way, way. Awareness leaks. And as it starts to leak, it affects and informs and transforms other dimensions of your being. And that's, I mean, that's just the beautiful part of doing these practices is that, um, and this is also important to interject, even if you don't have um, success in lucidity per se, there's still something happening in the deeper strata of your mind. The analogy I use is, you know, you have this big vat of water, big pot of cold water, um, you know, that represents your kind of bad habits, your non-lucidity. You put that pot of water on the stove, you turn on the heat. Well, depending on how much um, water there is, how cold it is, and how much heat you have turned on, sooner or later, depending on those qualities, things are going to start, they're going to heat up, and eventually they'll come to a boil. So I mentioned this because we're, if you engage in these practices, you're putting energy into the system. You're heating up the stews, the water, so to speak. And eventually this kind of phase transformation, transformation from water to steam, from non-lucidity to lucidity will start to happen for you. And so this is important to understand so that we don't get discouraged, so that we continue to apply the heat even if we don't see immediate conscious results. And, and, and again, if you really want to see the substantiation for this, study the literature on the Yogacara and the teachings on the eighth consciousnesses, where what you do with your conscious mind, the sixth consciousness, is absolutely positively downloading and transforming the eighth consciousness. That's this, this substrate mind. And eventually the, the fruition will start to come forth. Um, there's just no doubt about it. So the idea is just, um, persevere, be patient, and understand that anything that works with heightening awareness is going to be beneficial. This question is from Liz. Um, my question relates to what happens to me when I get lucid. The way I describe it is that I feel trapped by my own psychology. I call out a dream plan, for example, but nothing happens. Sometimes a dream character will, quote, shut down my experience. So I've become lucid quite a few times over the few years of my practice, but I am not sure how deeply my practice has penetrated, and I put this down to my ego shutting things down. This really feels like what you were saying about the ego this evening. So what can you recommend to assist with this ego quote, tightening situation? Yeah, what a great question. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great one um, because it's exactly what you're saying. You know, the, these practices, you know, the moniker for dream yoga is the measure of the path, the measure of the path. <clears throat> Dreams are truth tellers. Um, spiritually, they're truth tellers. 
um, psychologically, ever since Freud, they're truth tellers. <clears throat> Dreams will reveal things to you. And one of the things they can reveal is a kind of conflict of interest that there could be, <coughs> excuse me, a higher dimension of your being, the kind of ultraviolet dimension of your being that's on the spiritual path, that wants to wake up, that wants to evolve, that wants to become enlightened. But way on the other end of your kind of identity um, spectrum is the ultraviolet. Um, I'm sorry, the infrared aspect, the kind of evolutionary tail, the caboose that doesn't want to have anything to do with this, that prefers to be asleep, or as, as my teacher, Pulumpa Pache, once said, that prefers to be stupid. Uh, I love that directness. And so what these dreams will re reveal exactly as they're doing for you is this kind of conflict of interest, that part of you, your conscious part, may want to go with this, but your unconscious caboose, your evolutionary legacy, your tail, does not want to go here. So it puts this kind of unconscious do not disturb sign that says, you know, you can rouse me during the day, but don't rouse me at night. And understanding this to me can be really revelatory and, and actually quite humorous because it's exactly like you say, you know, you're willing to go pretty far, but there's part of you that's un, unprocessed that just doesn't want to go here. So the first thing you do is recognize this and smile at it and say, wow, look at look at this evolutionary legacy, this heritage of of non-lucidity, paren ignorance, that's holding me back. And then with that level of understanding um, supplanted with humor and a sense of levity, lightness, then we just simply continue. We just do our daily practices. We just keep plugging away. Um, and eventually, 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 in reference to the earlier question, you're putting energy into the system. Things will slowly start to change. Your, your lucidity will, will start to transform. It will become stronger. And you will start to make these kind of um, breakthroughs. But, you know, just the fact that you see that is an enormous accomplishment. I mean, that's huge. So celebrate that. Smile at it. And then, honestly, it may seem patronizing, but you just keep going. Um, because sooner or later, the, the old karma will exhaust itself. If you don't feed it, it will expire. It does have an expiration date if you don't feed it. So eventually, eventually, that will become exhausted. You'll start to see some of this recognition in your uh, dream state, and then you'll be able to, you know, kind of, so to speak, progress. But just recognizing this is a large marker of progress. So, so good for you on that. That's pretty cool. Here's a question from Jill. I do witness a strange state of mind, maybe only a second or two long during the daytime hours where I can be completely lost and confused. Like, where am I? What am I doing? Could this be a liminal state? Yeah. I, had I had just figured that was old age kicking in, but maybe I should pay better attention to these completely groundless moments. The trouble is that I am so uncomfortable in that mindlessness and confusion that all I want to do is get out of it and quickly figure out what I was in the process of doing, i.e. I need to fill that moment up. Yeah. How could I use something like an illusory form technique to remember to stop and witness the ever so brief moment of confusion and maybe recognize it or look at it? Yeah, that's fantastic. God, these questions are fantastic. So first of all, spot on. I mean, that's exactly right. Um, the, these liminal spaces are happening all the time. Um, like I mentioned in my tricycle course, Jill, I don't know if you took it, you know, the whole first course, the class was all about how 
Bardos are actually the nature of relative reality. If you take a very close look at, the, at your relative world, you will realize that it is chock full of liminal states, bardo states. But ego being anti-bardo, ego um, being really directly opposed to these um, um, kind of spaces, doesn't want to see it, doesn't want to hear it, doesn't want to experience it. And so the, the feeling that you're saying here, Jill, is exactly the same type of feeling, again, using this idea of recapitulation, right? That exact same feeling to fill the space, to, to kind of cover it over, to band-aid it over, that exact same feeling in a, in a, at the dream at the end of time when we die, according to these teachings, that exact same impulse will, in fact, hurl you um, in, into your next rebirth. And so these states are really interesting to explore. And so, you know, again, a sense of awareness, just being able to identify that is enormous. Just that is an expression of lucidity or awareness. It's like, oh, my gosh, I never realized this is this is like a very uh, kind of common aspect of my experience, these kind of gaps. So you understand it, you smile at it. And then just like with the previous question, you just uh, with a sense of humor, levity, and deeper understanding, and almost even um, you know, little maitri, compassion, under, uh, uh, loving kindness towards yourself. Then you just continue to work with it, and then instead of running from those spaces, Jill, you allow yourself to hang out in those liminal spaces, hang out in that groundless space, and be curious. What is it like if I just stay here? This is a little bit what I talk about is reverse meditations. You know, you. You stay in that groundless space. You stay open to it and just see how that works for you. So instead of seeing it as a problem, see it as an opportunity to understand how your egoic structure works. Again, starting with tying this back into what I said at the outset, these, these experiences cut the narrative of your um, kind of egoic agenda, the storyline of your life. You realize when you have these experiences, Jill, that that doesn't feel so good. Nobody likes, you know, ego does not like you to have its story uh, interrupted like that. But again, just seeing that is curative. And so now you can hang with it, play with it, explore it. And then eventually, honestly, you will find that um, you'll even start to look forward to those spaces because that's where potentially in the liminal spaces, that's where freedom lies. And so if you understand this, it completely transforms our relationship to them instead of running from them, scrambling to reify, to establish a narrative, to keep the, the storyline going. You hang out in that space and you realize, whoa, this is where the opportunities really lie. So, I mean, what a great contribution for you with the question. Thank you. Good one. Here's one from Jeff. Uh, I have a friend who told me galantamine is a cholinesterase inhibitor, and that's how many pesticides work. Are you aware of that as a potential problem with its use? Uh, I've had somebody else ping that my direction. I, I, the only thing I can tell you is I, I have used galantamine um, for many, many years. There have been countless studies involved with it. I can't speak with the total authority on this. I'm, I'm not a pharmacologist. I, I just have not done the research to see any of these kind of implicated, um, you know, deleterious side effects. I just can't speak with authority on that. I can only tell you, um, in fact, who knows exactly what the form is in, in these pesticides. I just don't know. I mean, all you have to do is, is shift a couple carbon chains 
and, and the molecular structure in, you know, it, it won't have a negative effect. So I can't speak with authority on that. I can only tell you that I still use it with confidence. I have never had um, an adverse side effect. So that's a question that's probably best delivered to um, a pharmacologist or someone who has more, even a molecular bio biologist, honestly. So that's probably the best I can do with that one. Here's one from uh, Kintaro. Uh, Andrew, why is it more difficult to be lucid in the dream during the beginning of the sleep than being lucid later? Yeah. Well, it's mostly because uh, we, I, I assume, Kintaro, that you're talking about earlier versus later in the night. Um, in the period of the night, I, I suspect that's what you're saying. And if that's the case, then it's because, you know, as the night progresses, we transform from mostly non-REM restorative sleep, non-dreaming sleep, more into REM dream sleep. And so as the night progresses, the brain transitions from um, non-REM to REM, from, um, from non-dream mostly uh, to dream states. And therefore, the opportunities to have lucidity, to have longer dreams, to have longer dreams, definitely occurs um, as the cycles and the stages of the sleep pattern, the sleep architecture progresses through the night. So if, if I understand your question properly, Kantara, that that's probably the answer to that. And if not, you can re-ask it. Um, here's a question from Kamala. From a non-dual perspective, who is, quote, in control to resolve karma? As this seems dualistic in a desire to befriend the pantheon of fear, is there a specific practice to befriend the fear, the fear of duality expressed as inadequacy? Holy moly, you guys. These are killer good questions. Yeah, Kamala, um, what to say here? Yeah, you know, we have to use language, right? So... Um, the minute you start to put any kind of um, non-dualistic idea into dualistic terms, you're screwed. Um, you know, you can't shrink wrap um, reality. You can't bring the non-dual into the dual state. Um, every time you do that, you run into paradox, irony at best. So um, let me start with that. And then, Andrew, reread it again, because there were several things that ping there that I just wasn't able to track. Just sure. Uh, from a non-dual perspective, who is, quote, in control to resolve karma? As this seems dualistic in a desire to befriend the pantheon of fear, is there a specific practice to, bef to befriend the fear, the fear of duality expressed as inadequacy? Yeah. Yeah, great questions. So, okay, so we'll start with the second one. In order to befriend the fear, the most important thing we can do is understand the nature of fear. Um, and Kamala, if you didn't take the tricycle course, I'll just restate it. I hate to keep pinging back to that, because, but I do know some listeners came from that course. Fear is an enormously um, rich, incredibly um, complex, deep topic that I explored in that course, and I'm also writing about quite extensively in, in a book that will be published next year that's a little bit beyond the scope just because there's so much to say here. But fundamentally, if you really want to understand and befriend fear, we have to understand the nature of fear. We have to really explore it, um, go into its guts, find out what it's all about, find out the opportunities there, understand that fear has a very powerful relative conventional role in human development. We have to honor that role. This is why I approach fear from an integral perspective, that we want to understand the evolutionary um, and beneficial aspects of fear that keep us biologically alive, while understanding that is we enter the um, uh, you know, path of spiritual development, 
we have to leave the fear that really got us to this point in evolution, we have to leave it aside because fear protects form. When we go from form to formless, which is what we're doing on the spiritual path, um, ego, which is based on fear, sees that as a death threat. So uh, I've written, uh, it'll again be published next year. I wish I could refer it to you now. Uh, maybe I can ping it up on my club site as an excerpt. And so, Andy, if you remind me, I can maybe um, cut that out and offer it as an excerpt on my club of this upcoming book. This is a super important, big question because fear is the fundamental emotion of samsara. It's the affective emotion expression of ignorance. And it is incredibly important to understand. So um, I'll probably leave that one behind and maybe post something on the nightclub site that talks about it in more depth because it's such an important big topic. Second thing, who is it that's in control? Well, you know, this is an even deeper question because when you start talking about who um, at these really subtle, really non-dual dimensions, that question in itself, just to show you how subtle this is, even the way the question is posited, even the way the question is asked, already sends the mind in the wrong direction. Because if you ask that question, which of course we have to again start with something, you're, you're already sending the mind towards a reified answer. Because fundamentally there is no who, just like there isn't a who right now. <laughs> and this might sound like you know spiritual sophistry or metaphysical mumbo jumbo, but it's not. It's a very nuanced, subtle exploration and understanding of the nature of who we are and the nature of reality. And so, uh, again, gosh, I wish we had more time to really unpack this one. But fundamentally, <clears throat> who is in control? Um, on one level, nobody's in control. On another level, if you want to under, under, understand and explore this, Kamala, is, um, again, I'm going to refer you to uh, the Yogacara teachings, the teachings on the eight consciousnesses, also material I'm currently writing on. Um, because, again, just like with the question on fear, this is a really big one. Um, and probably in the short limited time that I have in order to honor some of the other questions, if it's okay with you, I'll, I'll let that one slide for now. But I will post a little bit on the nightclub site some riffs on fear because this is such an important topic. So I apologize for not being able to be too much more thorough. Cool. Just a cool. few more questions. This is from Joni. Is alcohol a detriment or help to lucidity? Yeah, alcohol is one of the most um, potent suppressors of REM sleep known to man. So it's a detriment. Um, it can help you fall asleep, but it has a pretty powerful rebound effect and it, it suppresses the REM trajectory. So if you really want to explore lucidity and you just try this and see for yourself, alcohol definitely does not help. Um, and in fact, it suppresses REM sleep. So Probably not best. Um, here's another. I have repetitive dreams that occur in several locations that I am absolutely familiar with and can navigate. These are places I have never been when I am, quote, awake. Do you know anything about that? Uh, about that. What What is the that? Um, the reproducibility of those spaces and places. Um, so I'm not sure what the reference is. The, so what comes to mind is that we can, in fact, have um, reiterative, rep repetitive types of dreams where we can um, kind of ping into um, kind of repeated mindscapes. I, I, without engaging in a little bit of Q&A on this one, I'm not quite sure where to, to go with it. I, again, generally, 
um, we don't land in, in pre-existing landscapes unless you have true authentic out-of-body experiences versus hyperlucid dreams. And there are in fact ways to test that. When we fall asleep, we're experiencing a mindscape, not a landscape. And so if we're dropping into a kind of a, a recurrent reiterative land uh, mindscape, um, the literature is, is actually replete with stories of people who, who do that. They kind of, so to speak, re-inhabit states they haven't ever experienced in, in the physical world. They're purely expressions of their own mind. Um, but what that would mean in the deeper sense, you know, I'm actually unable to talk about that. I just, you know, personally, without engaging in some Q&A with you, I, I wouldn't know how to answer that. This is um, a follow-up from Prem. Just to clarify about your comments on fear, uh, will you distinguish between fear and PTSD slash trauma? And is that type of fear, panic, et cetera, essentially different from your perspective? Yes, it, it, it certainly can be. You know, PTSD is, um, again, I'm not, I'm not a therapist that specializes in PTSD. Um, the trauma that's born from that, um, certainly at the deepest levels and the fear that can be born from that, there's a tremendous resonance between that and, and these primordial levels of fear that I'm talking about. But what I also want to be sensitive to kind of centrifuge out here is that you know the depth of, of PTSD and and the traumas that are associated with that, which often includes you know um, night terrors and fear and the whatnot. Um, those types of traumas, um, in my opinion, should be um, addressed in a, a kind of broad spectrum uh, integrated way. That you're working literally with people who are trained in dealing with this. Um, I toss that in the mix because sometimes what happens is people think that somehow these spiritual modalities can heal all these sorts of wounds. Theoretically, yes, of course. And in essence, teachings on emptiness can heal everything. But in practicality and reality, it doesn't seem to work that way because these traumas can be so deeply embedded and lodged. But if I understand the question, Prem, there's a, obviously at the foundational levels of fear, there's a tremendous resonance and overlap. In the application of that fear and the expression of it, and how to work with it, there are obviously many different iterations and forms of that. Uh, and therefore, we have different skillful means, upayas, um, therapies, and the what and, the, and whatnot, that are designed to actually target these different kind of bandwidths of fear. Um, and I mention that because I think they should all be um, honored and incorporated not just one over the other, not just the spiritual, they can kind of take care of all of them. So so maybe one or two more, and then we can start to wrap this up unless you know people are starting to. Sure. Uh, this is from Whitney. Uh, if death occurs with abruptness, such as in an auto accident, and the body is unable to be transitioned easily, how does this affect the transition of death into the bardo? Yeah, uh, a difficult, painful question. Um, Yes, it, it, unfortunately, it can have an untoward um, consequence using the laws of what are called proximate karma, um, kind of the, like the idea of um, last thought, last experience on your mind before a moment of transition has a quite a large impact on, on the um, succeeding conscious um, in, uh, state of mind. Using the laws of proximate karma, sudden violent death, um, not the best way to die. Um, and again, it's just kind of somewhat logical in that regard, but that doesn't mean it has to be helpless. So you can do a couple of things if you are prepared 
you can do um, what I playfully call the emergency POA. This is my term for a, a very kind of abrupt, sudden, on-the-spot practice that you can do. This part I'm not making up um, comes from tradition, which means if you're about to be killed in a plane crash or whatever, as a practitioner, you want to have this toolkit in your pocket um, where the, what the tradition says here is you literally, literally raise your gaze, bring your vision up. Um, there's a reason to do that using subtle body um, processes where you want to bring the awareness to the top of your head. You um, uh, can recite uh, one of two mantras if you believe in these sorts of things. Um, mantra has tremendous power during moments of transition. You can either recite the mantra of Amitabha, which is Om Amidewa Hri, which is a mantra um, of positivity, so to speak, where you want to send your awareness. Or you can recite the mantra of Chenrezi, Om Mani Padme Hum, which is kind of a closure mantra that um, prevents rebirth into the lower, um, you know, these kind of different states of mind. So uh, very briefly, yes, dying in a negative state of mind for an unprepared mind has untoward consequences. For a practitioner, especially a stable one, doesn't matter. doesn't matter the type of death. They're already relating to their experience from a deeper, kind of more indestructible, deathless position. doesn't matter what happens. For those of us somewhere in between, we can do this kind of emergency POA. Um, and I do this when I'm flying, and the, and the plane is just bouncing all over, and it's like, whoa, you know, this isn't looking too good. You know, I, I think of my teacher. That's the other thing I do because I believe in the power of devotion. Um, I bring the awareness up, and then I recite one of these two mantras. So um, something like that. Here's uh, one from Nestor, and then I'll just give one to, to close it. Is it necessary to train lucid dreaming, or is it better to give most of your energy to meditation? Yeah, I mean, why not do both? Um, you know, lucid dreaming is, is like, I, I talk about it's like adding a night shift. Um, the here's, here's another way to say this. If you only had one thing to do, you couldn't do both, then of course your daytime practices are the main practice. Um, what you do during the day when you have the ability, you know, to, to work very consciously and directly with your mind, the daytime practices, um, because we're the most lucid and conscious in that state, obviously really they're the most important. And that's why things like bardo yoga, like dream yoga, sometimes I talk about these, especially bardo yoga, I talk about it sometimes as insurance dharma, insurance teachings. Um, dream yoga, a little bit, you know, in that same spirit that, you know, we have these tools at our disposal. Why not use them? That's why they're given to us by the wisdom traditions. So unless you're absolutely positively forced to do one or the other, my view on it is why not do both? Um, because when you're engaging in the practices of lucidity, lucid dreaming, you are starting to take advantage of up to a third of your life um, that's lost in oblivion. So why wouldn't we want to take advantage of these states and bring them into the path of lucidity and awareness? So the daytime practices are the most important for sure. That's why um, in our trajectory, we start with, you know, science of medicine of sleep and we progress to meditation, daytime practices, the practice of the loose reform. These are the infrastructure disciplines. And then from there, then we start to add, we start to add, supplement, augment, support with these other tools. So I would say, why not engage in both of them? And uh, these will be the last two questions. They kind of go together, and it seems like a nice way to end. From Betty and Sheila, 
can you recommend a couple of books for beginners on this topic? And what's the next opportunity for studying these nocturnal practices? So this topic meaning what? Um, <laughs> yeah, so um, we've covered so many topics. I suspect you're, you're referring to these nocturnal practices altogether. And so with, with some humility, I would say, you know, um, perhaps look at my book, uh, Dream Yoga, Illuminating Your Life Through Lucid Dreaming and the Tibetan Yogas of Sleep. Um, I cover a, a quite a bit of material in this book. Um, two more books are coming out this year that I'm writing, by the way, on this topic. Um, other books, if you're looking at, at, at uh, working with lucid dreaming and the like, there, there are really many, many beautiful books. The work of Stephen LaBerge, Lucid Dreaming, and then Exploring the World of Lucid Dreaming are fantastic books for lucidity. Um, the books of Claire Johnson, who I just interviewed, she has a really terrific set of books on this. Charlie Morley, who I also interviewed, has a terrific set of books. Um, Alan Wallace, who I also interviewed, has um, his book, uh, uh, Dreaming Yourself Awake. In terms of the world of dream yoga, a little bit less out there on that. Um, Alan Wallace's book that I just mentioned is a really good one there. Tenzin Wangyal, The Tibetan Yogas of um, Dream and Sleep. Um, and then if you're talking about Bardo, then there's so much out there. Um, again, my second book, Preparing to Die, is all about Bardo principles. Maybe look at that. Um, Mind Beyond Death Beyond uh, by Pulna Rinpoche. Um, Peaceful Death, The Joyful Rebirth by Tukutinda Rinpoche. Um, I think that's probably enough. So there's, you know, and I will be posting. In fact, I think some of these are already posted on my club, on my site. So in terms of how to go forward, like, for instance, with me, then thank you for this kind of plug. Really kind of summarized. This is like the entire kind of charter of what we're doing with night school is, in fact, to take exactly what we're talking about here today. Um, and really going into it with curriculums, with courses, with webinars, with interviews. And I think if you just frequent that site and see what we already have there, it's like, I, you know, we did the math on it. It's like 30 cents a day to join this puppy. Um, you know, we will be offering over the upcoming years a tremendous amount of resource material that covers all these topics that we were pinging on today. So I guess it's a nice way for me to, to summarize everything we've done and to also plug to plug my lemonade stand this nightclub thing um uh, so stay, stay tuned on that you know every week i offer something live whether it's a webinar like this or interviews um then i'll post stuff on on the site itself so just check out the site you'll see how rich it is and how you know we just launched this thing and there's so much more still coming up so i think with, with those resources the books i mentioned and the site itself you know you'll have plenty to work with so what do you think, Andy? Are we starting to wrap it up here? Seems so. Yeah, thank you, everybody. And so sorry about this silly delay. Um, you know, we had a, quite the panic moment there for, for 40 minutes. We could not get on at all. Um, and finally, thank goodness I have three computers here. My second one, we were able to get on. So thank you so very much for joining. Those of you who may have had the same problem we did and could not get on, um, we will post this um, ASAP on my main site. This will be free and available to anybody for a very, very long time. Um, you know, those who are unable to join us because we had some 400 people registered, we'll have the site available to you and we'll inform you of this, um, uh, the fact that we actually were still able to do it. So everybody else, thank you so much for joining us. Sorry for the slight um, 
scramble at the beginning. It was definitely a Bardo moment for me trying to put all this together when I didn't think it was going to happen. Um, thanks, Andy, for helping us and um, join us on Nightclub. It's a really cool adventure where we just take these topics and we go into them in real depth for uh, quite an extended period of time into the foreseeable future. So thank you, everybody. Thanks for your patience. And uh, really, I've had a great time. I love the Q&A. Terrific questions. So talk to you later.